Section 129 of China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Son of the Exiles. The World Story, Volume 1 China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 129. Gold, Gold, Gold. By W. H. Lang. Australia had been having a bad time of it in the forties. What with droughts, the low price of stock, the slow growth of population, and the fact that the market for her produce lay so very, very far away from the thickly populated countries of the old world, things were not looking very bright. And in 1849, by the merest chance, gold was found in California, and found too by a New South Wales man. He was deepening a mill race when he saw in the water glowing particles large enough to pick up with his fingers. He knew that it was gold, but he did not know how to win it, and had not an old Georgian miner been there, the discovery might even have lapsed into obscurity. Before 1849, there were only a few thousand inhabitants in the great state of California. Then all the riffraff of the old countries turned their faces to the west, and a great crowd streamed away, their eyes burning and glowing in the desire for the wealth which they believed would lie at their feet when they reached the new land. From Australia, too, a crowd rushed away to the east to join that which was rolling to the west from Europe, and our population became even thinner than it had been before. And amongst those emigrants from Sydney was one man called Edward Hammond Hargraves. He shipped with many others in a vessel called the Elizabeth Archer, and arrived in San Francisco to find the whole of the great bay besides the town a forest of masts. The whole world seemed to be flocking there, and Hargraves joined the crowd. But if for twenty years fortune had not smiled upon him in New South Wales, neither yet did she seem to be any more kind in California. Yet, although he won no more gold than was sufficient to keep him going, he was an observant fellow, a practical geologist in a rough way, and a man of character, industrious and determined. As he worked away in the California gullies and saw the nature of the country, it began to take possession of his mind that he had seen exactly like formations in the land which he had just left, the same geological strata and the same combination of deposits which led the experience to say, here is gold. His companions laughed at his theories, but he was deeply in earnest, and he hankered day and night to be at home again. He had arrived in San Francisco in 1849. He sailed in the bark Emma in January 1851, and, like all true Australians, who think there is no country in the world like their own, was glad to be at home again. Hargraves made no secret of his theories, either on the voyage or on his arrival in Sydney, but he was laughed at as a crank. Gold in Australia? Pooh, pooh. The man was mad. And yet gold had already been won there. Away far back in the time of Governor Philip, 
a convict had produced a piece of gold which he said he had found he could discover no more and got a flogging for his pains as an impostor and a liar sir roderick murchison the geologist had written papers showing that in the geological formation portions of australia resembled the diggings in the urals count streslecki who pioneered gippsland had found an auriferous iron ore but not likely to be payable and it was known that a man had picked up a nugget several ounces in weight on the fish river in eighteen thirty then there were all sorts of rumours of how convict shepherds had made themselves rich by selling gold to the jews in sydney and there was no doubt that one old fellow called mcgregor from time to time took parcels of gold to the city and sold them there hargraves knew all these things and he could not rest for a moment after landing in sydney he hired a horse and set out early in february across the blue mountains it was a lonesome desolate ride through a barren sterile country but after being lost once he arrived on the fourth day at a little inn kept by a widow woman named lister at Gaiyong. he was nearly in the country now which he had had in his mind's eye all through his california wanderings and he was in a high state of excitement you may be sure he took mrs lister into his confidence and she as most women would have been was fairly bitten by the scheme and the prospects that hargraves held out to her when asked to find a black boy as a guide she at once offered the services of her own son who knew every inch of the country all around for many miles they started away from the inn on the twelfth of february in bright early autumn weather after a dry summer and in very few miles hargraves recognized the old spots on the banks of a creek it was here that his mind had always pictured for him the discovery of untold treasures of gold but the creek was dry at the place and while his guide searched for water hargraves unwillingly sat down to take a hasty meal then the boy returned with the news that he had found a water-hole in the creek bed the horses were hobbled and allowed to stray away and the grand experiment was begun hargraves scratched the gravel off a schistos dyke which ran across the creek at right angles and then with a trowel he dug a panful of the earth which lay upon the rock and ran with it to the water so as to wash it in his dish you have never washed a dish full of earth i suppose it is a most exciting sport i assure you you have a tin dish with a little rim looking inwards and there are two or three rings running round the body of the basin you put your spadeful of earth into this and then sitting on your haunches by the waterside you dip the earth and the dish into the water and quickly wash away all the light soil then there is left after some time only the gravel and this you gradually get rid of by swaying the basin backwards and forwards causing the water contained in it to go round and round like a little maelstrom until there is left only the larger heavier portions and some heavy mineralized sand then you pick out the big pieces of quartzy gravel making them to rasp pleasantly on the tin and you throw them to one side and as you wash the water grows clearer and clearer and the sand leaves a tail behind it as the water sweeps it around your dish and then in the tail you see gleaming dull and warm not glittering but glowing rather 
the unmistakable, unspeakable, soul-stirring virgin gold. So it was with Hargraves. Down there in the lonely gullies by the creekside, he washed dish after dish of soil, and in each lay the little particles, those treasures which had been hidden from the eyes of man ever since the beginning of time. It was enough to make a man lose his head, and for a moment, indeed, as he tells us himself, he did go mad. I shall be made a baronet, he called out to his guide. You will be knighted, and the old horse stuffed and put in the British Museum. And his innocent companion believed him. It is curious that Hargrave's mind did not seem to run on acquiring untold wealth by his discovery. I think I should have liked to go and dig and wash and wash and dig until I had acquired enough of the stuff to buy a principality and then have gone and told the authorities all about it. What do you think you would have done? But Hargraves wished to be made a baronet, of all things, and have his horse stuffed. And so what did he do? He proved about seventy miles of country to be gold-bearing, he saw ten thousand pounds raised in a week to the surface, and he called the place Ophir. Then he hastened back to Sydney, and bargained that the government should give him ten thousand pounds down as a reward for his great discovery. This was agreed to, and they also made him commissioner of the goldfields, a not very lucrative post. And with this he was contented. But, as he himself tells, had he asked for ten shillings for every hundred pounds worth of gold won for the first three years, it would not have been considered excessive. And by the bargain, he would have become the possessor of several hundred thousands of pounds. And that is the story of how gold was first found in Australia. The Australian diggings became the magnet which seemed to be attracting the whole earth. Even her own towns were deserted. Servants were not to be had at any wage. Doctors, lawyers, shoe-blacks, coach-builders, butchers and bakers, everybody rushed away to the diggings, eager to be rich. The newspapers were full of nothing else but gold, news-sheets and advertisements. Parramatta, a suburb of Sydney, was absolutely depopulated. It was a mad time. When Hargraves had completed his bargain with government, he again started out on horseback for the fields. He found a stream of people going both ways, out to the diggings and back again. Those going out were full of hope and fire, their faces shining like those travellers in the Pilgrim's Progress who were going up to the Golden City. Those coming back were moving along slowly, sullen and sulky, beaten. It was like the two streams of fighters which eyewitnesses described as going up and down Spion Cop in the Boer War. Those disappointed ones were vowing a terrible vengeance on him who had deceived them, as they called it. Hargraves did not tell them who he was, but at a ferry, where numbers had to wait their turn to be taken over, having first mounted his horse, he made a speech to the discontented, pointing out how and why they had failed. It was as well that he had been wise enough to mount his horse before he disclosed his name. The crowd would have lynched him. They were a motley crew, both coming and going. There was even a blind man being led by a lame one. 
the cripple extended his hand over his crutch and the blind one held it and so they went off with the best of them all of thirst for gold there was no difficulty in finding your way the roads were full of passengers of every kind on foot on horseback in drays and wagons all sorts and when you at length reached the land of promise it was a picturesque sight as you topped the last hill in the ranges the mining township lay at your feet all made of canvas tents or of wood huts the creek on which the gold was being won wound at the feet of thickly timbered hills and every here and there was joined by a gully from the mountains the smoke was rising blue in the distance and from far down beneath you arose a constant rumble and hum like distant thunder it was the noise of the cradles then as evening fell the lights of innumerable fires began to twinkle through the darkness the rumble of the cradles ceased and after a while the township slept all over the country towns like this sprang up and not only at the site of the first rush but away down in victoria where the wealth of gold soon eclipsed that found in new south wales in a few months there were collected at ballarat and mount alexander alone between twenty and thirty thousand men and the total population of the colony only came to a scant two hundred thousand and it took months before the news reached the old world and the thronging thousands began to arrive by the shipload one writer at this time in reference to this distance from home says the clipper phoenician one of the most beautiful ships i ever saw reached plymouth on the third having made the unprecedentedly quick passage of eighty-three days there was no cable girdling the earth in forty seconds then and letters took eighty-three days at the quickest in transit now they are delivered punctually to the hour in thirty and the wickets as they fall in an international cricket match in london are printed in the next morning's argus in melbourne twelve thousand miles away and then the gold came pouring into the great towns on the seaboard for shipment home there were tons of it and i mean it literally when i write tons of it hargraves had washed his little spadefuls of earth in february the rush had begun in april from november the second to the thirtieth of that month the gold carried from ballarat to melbourne and geelong by the government escort alone weighed two tons and a half and this was believed to be only one-third of the whole amount raised in this district alone in one month from one locality seven tons of pure virgin native gold it was worth at the lowest three pounds ten an ounce when you look at it this way you can have but little wonder that the whole country went mad and in those days it was so easily found in many places the precious stuff simply lay on the surface in what are called nuggets there are plenty of these yet if we had eyes to see and knew where to look for them but fifty years ago these nuggets were comparatively common here for instance is the story of one particularly big find it was a few months after the first discovery had taken place at ophir in the bathurst district the first tremendous excitement had died out and then there appeared one morning in the bathurst newspaper the big headlines of 
Bathurst gone mad again. And it was little wonder. A Dr. Kerr had a station at a place called Wallawar. He and his wife had been very kind to the blacks, and they had several of them employed as shepherds and workers on the run. One afternoon a black fellow who had been shepherding sheep came in and told the doctor he had found a big lump of gold far out on the place. Gold was of no use to him, but he had heard much talk about it and knew how the white man valued the dross. The doctor mounted his horse and took a hammer and a saddle-bag. There it lay, open to the view of any man who might pass that way. No wonder if the sheep's teeth that had nibbled round it had been filled with gold. At his feet the doctor saw a mass of gold and quartz which weighed over a hundred weight. Four thousand eight hundred and sixty pounds worth was his for the trouble of a day's ride. It is told that on the journey home the doctor had a stop at some outlying house and he had no wish that the nature of the packet in his saddle-bag should be known. He flung it carelessly down beside the fence as he dismounted from his horse. "'That's heavy,' said the owner of the house. "'Ah, my word,' replied the doctor, "'it might be gold.' And the curious part of this discovery was that nowhere near the spot where the hundredweight had lain could any more gold be found. Even the earth from the vicinity when washed yielded not one grain not a tiny speck but with gold to be won by the ton and with hundreds weight lying on the surface so that you might make them your pillow as you lay back and smoked your after-dinner pipe whilst you were watching the sheep it is no wonder that the gold fever spread like the measles or influenza and that the whole community lost their heads as ship after ship came sailing in and discharged its load of immigrants, the sailors used to bolt away as the anchor fell, leaving their officers in despair to work their vessels as they might. What wild, strange times they were! End of section 129 This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Son of the Exiles